Today, there's going to be some crazy, amazing, cool stuff going on. Got to move fast because we've packed a lot in today. So track with me. Uh, There's a, a lot to go through. We are in the part of the life of Moses where God is done bringing the 10 plagues upon the Egyptians and Pharaoh has decided to let the people of Israel go. Finally, after 10 plagues, Israel, get out of here. Go do your own thing. I want to remind us, though, of the mission plan or the mission statement of God in all of this. Why has God been doing what he's been doing in the book of Exodus? Exodus 12, 11 says this. It's because God is executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. And we've talked about the last two weeks how each plague loosely corresponds to a deity in Egypt. And we've talked about this, and this is incredibly important as, as we move forward. Pharaoh, in Egyptian thought, is the divine image of God. He is the son of Amnu-Ra. The Egyptians thought that as Pharaoh ruled and Pharaoh and his priest performed the religious rites, rituals, and ceremonies, that order would be maintained in Egypt and the cosmos. This is a foreign idea to modern people, but let me say it again. As Pharaoh does his job and the priests do their jobs through the worship of the gods, the ceremonies, the rites, and the rituals, as they do those things, ma'at, Egyptian word for order, is maintained. So in Egyptian thought, you would say, well, why is there no famine in the land of Egypt? Where Pharaoh maintains ma'at, he maintains order. If ma'at is undone, then chaos would break out. But Egypt right now is the superpower of the world. So everyone in Egyptian thinks, well, Pharaoh maintains Ma'at, he's the divine son of Amnu-Ra, and Ma'at is established. What occurred in the previous chapters of Exodus is the God of the Israelites destroying the order of Egypt. The God of Israel is destroying the Ma'at, the order of Egypt, and chaos is breaking out in the land which means Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt are no longer able, they were powerless to maintain Ma'at in order before the God of Israel. It's very important that you understand this is what's being seen by the Egyptians. And so after all of this, Pharaoh has stubbornly resisted letting the Israelites go free, but after the 10 plagues, he finally lets them go free. And if you've been tracking with this, you know it's only a matter of time before what? Pharaoh changes his mind. And that's where we pick up. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them and Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and encamped with them at the sea. Two quick notes. First, there's this issue of Pharaoh's heart hardening. I'm not going to get into that today. Sam Whitaker gave a message last week that dealt with it. He did an incredible job. So if you're wondering more about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, I'll refer you to last week. One of the things that's cool about our website now is it not only has the audio of the sermon, but it has the video. Every, every week we have the videos uploaded now. We also have the curriculum, and soon we'll have the slides for every sermon uploaded. So in the teaching section of the website, you're going to get a full package of the teaching component. But go to that if you want to hear more on that. Sam did a great job. I want to draw your attention to the word right before verse 9. It 
says the people of Egypt were leave, people of Israel were leaving Egypt defiantly. Defiantly comes from a Hebrew yad. And yes, it could be translated defiantly, but it's better to picture what it literally means. The literal image of yad is someone whose hands are raised. So yes, it could be an act of defiance, but more likely, and I think a better way to see this is it's an act of victory. The Israelites are leaving Egypt in victory and their hands are up. Yahweh, our God, the God of the Israelites has done it. He's defeated the gods of Egypt. He is victorious. We are victorious. We're on our way to the promised land. It's the natural reaction, right? When something is victorious in your life, you win a game, or you don't even have to be a part of the game. You could be watching a game on TV and your team wins the championship and you don't even think, what do you do? Now, it's hard to imagine because it's, it's been a bit. It's been a bit for you Bay Area folk. You had some good years a few years ago, some real good ones. Now you've gone back to the darkness. It's going to be another 30 years before you see a championship. Another 30. Some of you are going, no, no, that's... You true Warriors fans, you know it. There was a two decades of darkness. I mean, I used to practice against them and almost beat them in those years. They were bad. You're bad. Okay. So you win and you're victorious. Your hands are up. That's the image you need to see because look at the very next slide. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? You see the switch? Yes, yeah, we did it. We did it. Next verse. Oh, we're going to die. We're all going to die. Thanks, Moses. Wasn't no graves in Egypt. We just die here. Took him out to the desert to die. There's a temptation here. You do it, I do it, we all do it. We look at these Israelites. We go, how could they so easily forget? How could they so easily... God just did 10 plagues, miracle after miracle after miracle. If I had seen those miracles, man, my faith wouldn't shake right here. My faith wouldn't falter at this point. If I had seen that, really, really, you think your faith would be that strong? How many times in your life has God provided and then the next week something hits you and the anxious thoughts come rushing back? It's the pattern of us all. There's a temptation when we read the Bible, and the temptation is that we always see ourselves in the hero position. We're the hero of the story. I'm like Moses, and it's all these other Israelites who are, you know, they're the ones who are acting out of line. You know, you're raising your family. I'm the mom that's like Moses. These kids are brats, man. None of them are listening. Or you read the story of David and Goliath and you picture yourself as David destroying Goliath. I'm Daniel in the lion's den. I'm Joseph. And you pretend that you'd be the righteous one. Moses said to be the most humble man to ever live. Oh, yeah, I'm like, I'm like Moses. It's, it's like me, humble. I was voted Gilroy's most humble man of the year, 2019. <laughs> See, when the New Testament authors read the Old Testament, they don't teach you to read the, the, the biblical stories like that. They don't say, you're like David, slaying your giants. 
what they do is they say, oh, David, David is a lesser version of Jesus. Jesus is the greater David. Oh, Daniel in the lion's den, that's like Jesus. Jesus is the greater Daniel. Oh, Joseph, Jesus is the greater Joseph. The New Testament authors look at the heroes of the Old Testament and never say, that's you. They say those are images and pictures of Christ. So when it comes to the story of David and Goliath, I'm not David slaying the giant, I'm David's brother. I'm hiding. Hey, little David, you, you go get him. Had a boy. Go get him. Thanks for the cheese. Go get him. And in this story, I'm the Israelites. God has been faithful again and again and again, and now I'm stressing about the next problem. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. This is one of the most powerful, powerful verses in Scripture. Take this in one more time. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Now make no mistake about it. This, this standing firm and silent act is not an act of passivity. It's not, I'm going to go hide in the corner and not do anything and let God do it. When God says to be still, what you are doing is you are actively trusting in him. It's be still, be quiet. You can't deliver yourself from this situation. Just trust that God fights for you. It's active trust, not something that's passive. Have you ever been there? Have you ever tried to fix something, restore something, make something work, reconcile something? You do again and again and again and again in your own hands and you try and try and try again and it fails and it fails and it fails to you're at a point where the only thing you could do is say, God, I cannot make this happen with my hands. I'm at the end of the line. All I could do is stand firm and ask you, God, to fight on my behalf. And in silence, you wait upon the Lord. Now, there's something you have to understand here. Uh, the Israelites are between two things, the Egyptian army and water. It's important to understand, though, that they are not just between the Egyptian army and the water, because the Egyptian army is not just the Egyptian army, and the water is not just the water. Those two things function symbolically. I mean, they're literal. There's a literal army and literal water, but they're more than that. The Egyptian army represents institutionalized evil in the form of empire. All throughout the book of Genesis, you get glimpses of human evil, but it's never on a kind of empire scale, a national scale. Cain kills Abel. There's sin all throughout the book of Genesis. You almost get sort of institutionalized kind of empire occurring in the Tower of Babel story, but God scatters it. But this is the first time in the scriptures where you have the giant superpower of the world institutionalize evil in the form of empire coming after the people of God. That's what's behind Israel. In front of them is water. 
But it's not just water. Because in the Bible, water is rarely just water, especially when it's the sea. In ancient Near Eastern thought, the sea is not a good place. The sea is the place of the chaotic waters. The destructive forces and chaotic waters of nature are at the sea. Where does the beast and the antichrist come from in the Bible? The sea. What does God do in the flood? He sees the world up. He puts ocean over the whole thing. The ancient people thought that there were sea monsters in the sea called Tananim, sometimes called Leviathan. It's a place to fear. They're not modern people. Modern people look at the ocean. Go, look how beautiful it looks. It would be so nice to be on a sailboat as the sun sets. Most ancient people don't know how to swim. They don't have GPS. They don't have a radio to call in for help when they get off course. Like, you go in the ocean, man. You go on that boat. I ain't getting out there. Remember, the disciples are on the sea and there's a storm that happens. They're like, we're all going to die. Sea's not a good thing. In the book of Revelation, what happens to the sea? The sea is no more. And then that's not because God does away with beaches. There still be beaches in the new creation. But it's a metaphor for saying the destructive forces of chaos will be no more. And so Israel's be trapped between two places. They are trapped between the destructive forces of human evil and the destructive forces of chaotic nature. And they think they're going to die. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. This is interesting right here. So Moses turns to the Lord in prayer, and God says, Why do you cry to me? Just go, you know what to do, go do it. Can you imagine if that happened to you? Oh God, I'm surrounded by my enemies, the destructive forces of human evil, the destructive forces of the chaotic water. God, deliver me. Moses, quit your crying. Isaac, I don't want to hear it anymore. Start walking. That's sort of the language of this. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people to go forward. Tell them to start walking in the water. God has delivered the 10 plagues. What do you think? He's not going to make a passage for you through that water? He just brought you out here to die? Get on with the walking. There's a Jewish tradition from the Midrashim of a guy named Nashkshan. And the story says that as Moses is praying this and God's telling him to sort of like get on with it, this dude, like in faith, starts walking in the water ahead of everybody. He's like, God brought us here. I have faith. I'm just going to walk. I know God's going to do something. He's going to part these waters. And the rabbis would wrestle with the question. They say, how far into the water did he have to get before God parted the water? How much faith did he have to have? Just like, you know, your ankle. Some of you do this at the ocean. You're one of these people. I'm going to go, I'm going to go in the ocean for a bit. And what you mean is you're going to let your feet to your ankles kind of get wet. And you say it's really cold. And then you come out. That was so refreshing. Your big toe got wet. That's it. How far did he have to go? One of the rabbinical traditions says that this man walked till the water was at his neck before God parted the sea. And there's a tradition that says Psalm 92, which begins with, the waters are up to my neck. Help me, Lord, is about this man crossing the sea. Now, we can't be certain of the historical truth to this. These, these, these aren't in the Bible, but the, the point is still there. They got the point from this. God has brought them to the sea. He said, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to take you to the promised land. There's the sea. 
Moses, why are you crying to me? Get going with it. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. A lot going on here, but I I want, want you to just kind of focus on one thing. God is personally present with his people in this pillar of of smoke and fire, this cloud. As he's personally present with his people, to his people, it's a light, it's a comfort, it's a protection. To his enemy, the Egyptians, it's, it's, it's a veil, it's a darkness. Then the text says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the, lo- the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Water split. You can pretend you guys are water and you guys are water, and there's like a path of dry land between us. When you're reading this, you may be going, now the Israelites know that that their God has provided a way for them, and they're probably singing and dancing, going through that, that kind of pathway, celebrating. No. You got to understand how terrifying this is. We don't know how long that dry path is, but it's probably a long way. And the waters, the chaotic waters that they fear are being raised up as walls and they're supposed to go through it. Ancient people didn't know how to swim. What happens if those walls come down? What about the parents who don't know how to swim who have toddlers? What about the mom who's about to give birth any second? What about the parents who have an infant in their hand? Or what about the people who are carrying the elderly through the dry land? This is frightening. What those people have to do in this instance is they have to put faith in God. A faith that said God is presently and personally withholding back the destructive forces of watery chaos from engulfing me. You have to believe that God is at every second personally holding back chaos from engulfing you. Every step, God is sustaining me. Now you might say that's great faith, and it is, but there's something else that we modern people miss. You have to understand that whether you know it or not, you are in the exact same situation before the Red Sea every second of your life. You must believe that at every second of your life, God is personally withholding back chaos from engulfing you and killing you. Yes, what do I mean by that? What do you mean by that? See, we're modern people. So we think just the laws of nature are fixed and they just, they just run by themselves. The earth, of course it sits on a 23 degree axis. Of course our, our atmosphere is composed of this precise amount of oxygen. Oh, of course electrons always do their orbit. Modern people like to think that those laws of nature are not contingent upon anything. There's no grounds underneath them. 
It's like the biblical authors, and by the way, most people in most places at most times, even if they were introduced to the scientific, scientific discovery of a law of nature, they would go, what holds that law together? What is it contingent upon? Your body is composed of hundreds of millions of trillions of cells that all are super highly complex machines doing exactly what they're supposed to, holding together. So even if you could explain the natural cause, it doesn't do away with the first and primary cause. You have to understand that at this moment, this very second, if God himself was not personally upholding all the fixed laws of his created order, absolute chaos would engulf you and you would die. Every second of your life is being personally supported by the hand of God. Every second, every movement, every breath is an act of mercy. God holds back the chaos and gives order. Now, there's something else going on here. And this is harder for us to see, and it's partly because we don't, we don't take in the Bible in the way ancient cultures did. Ancient cultures would hear these stories told again and again and again and out, out loud, and you would picture them. And so you would always be imaging them in your head. So, you know, the, the, the first person to hear the story of the Exodus isn't going, huh, I wonder if that verb is a third person, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, I'm not knocking that. I, I went to school to do Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff. There's an important point for that. But when you hear these stories, they are meant to be pictured and to be told like around the campfire. And so when you do that, things begin to open up when you read these stories. Things we'll call design templates or design patterns. We've talked about this before, but if you're new to the, to the church, let me explain what I mean by design pattern. A design pattern is something that appears in the scripture and say three things happen, one, two, three. And when those three things happen, this always happens. Design patterns appear throughout the Bible. One, two, three happens, and that always happens. One, two, three happens, and that always happens. The best example of this that we've used in the past is the story of Eve and the serpent. The serpent tempts Eve and says, you should eat that fruit. The fruit is forbidden. It's bad. Eve is told by God, don't eat that fruit. How is the story told? Eve sees the fruit. In Hebrew, see ra'az. She sees with her eyes, and even though that fruit is forbidden and bad, she declares that fruit to be good. In Hebrew, tov. And then she takes the fruit, lakaz it. And so when you read the Bible again and again and again and again, you'll see there's a pattern. Oftentimes, someone sees something that's forbidden or sinful, and they declare it to be good, and they take it. And when you see those three things happen, you know what's about to happen next is all bad. So King David is out on the roof one night, and he sees a woman, Bathsheba, bathing. She's a married woman, forbidden, bad, not good, forbidden by God. What does the text say? David sees Raaz, Bathsheba, and even though she's forbidden, he says she is beautiful in your English translation, but the word in Hebrew is tov. Bathsheba is forbidden. David sees her and declares her to be tov, 
And then what happens? He doesn't woo her and try to, you know, impress her, invite her over to the palace. What does he do? He takes her, lacaz her. David sees Bathsheba, sees which is forbidden, declares it to be good in his own eyes, and takes it, lacaz. And from that, you know, is this going to be a good family, a good, healthy family? Or are you going to be a whack, dysfunctional family? Bad family. Bad family. I'd like to introduce you to another design template. In the Exodus story, which will become for the entirety of the Bible the quintessential image of salvation, God delivering his people through the sea from the enemies and bringing them on dry land. This becomes the quintessential image of salvation. You have chaotic waters being suspended, and then you're going to have them engulf the Egyptian army. Where is the first place you see chaotic waters in the Bible? Verse 1, the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was Hebrew tohu vavohu, without form and void. It's wild and reckless, uninhabitable. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So verse 1 of the Bible gives you an image. It's an image. And if you were hearing this around the fire growing up, you're picturing it. And what do you picture? The tohu vavohu. Dark, formless, reckless, wild, chaotic waters. And there's darkness. And then you picture a character. Not necessarily God proper. Later we would say the third person of the Trinity. But who do you see? The Spirit of God. Hebrew for spirit is ruach. Ruach can be translated spirit, wind, or breath. It's the Spirit of God, but the image is like breath and wind. But it's the Spirit. It's the personal presence of God. And what is the spirit doing? Hovering or fluttering. The rabbis would say this is an image of a bird. The spirit of God is hovering over the chaotic waters like a peaceful dove. That's the image. What happens next? God brings order to the chaos. He says, let there be light. He divides light from darkness. Then on day two, he separates the waters. He divides and splits the waters. On day three, out of the water, something emerges. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So let me review. Chaotic waters. Spirit of God hovering like a bird. God brings order by separating night from day, light and darkness, separating the seas, and then something emerges out of the water. Not just earth or a mountain, a specific term is used, dry land, yabasha, it's a technical term. There's many occurrences of it in the Bible, but not tons. Yabasha comes up through the chaotic waters. If you're familiar with the story, God continues creating. But then also after this, even though God already created light and darkness, he hasn't created sun and moon, right? So following this, there's a creation of the rest of the animals, humanity, but also the sun. Have that image of your head. Chaotic waters, a breath, wind, spirit, ruach of God, separating and splitting the waters and dry land appearing. 
Where is the next place you see the chaotic waters covering the entire earth? The flood. And in that, the story tells us that all of humanity has gone evil. They're all wicked, except for Noah and his family. So what happens? God brings the chaotic waters back. That should take you back to Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1.1, if the whole earth is covered with the waters of chaos, it's all tohu vavohu again, the flood is like taking us back to Genesis 1. And you're going to see there's hints that the author wants you to see this. Tohu vavohu all over again. Except that God saves. He has an instrument of salvation, the ark. And in the ark is not just a family. All six days of creation are in that ark. Because he's going to do uncreation or decreation, but through his ark of salvation, he'll maintain his creation and put it back, you're going to see, on Yabasha, dry land. But first, Noah does what? There's a dove who's looking for Yabasha. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in the mouth was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. So waters are subsiding, and there's an image of a dove hovering over the waters looking for dry land. Yabasha. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. Now listen to the language here. Birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now when you read your Bible again and again and again, things start to stick out for you. Does this language sound familiar? This is Genesis 1 language. It doesn't just say, hey, bring out all the, the things you got on the boat. It's the animals, every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Where is that phrase from? It's the six days of creation. What about the things that swarm on the earth? This is the six days of creation because they're all saved in the ark from the chaotic waters. And if it wasn't clear enough, what does God do at the end of the six days of creation? What's his first command? Be fruitful and multiply. What's the command now? That they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Okay. Chaotic waters. God's spirit is there, hovering, fluttering, often pictured as a bird. God brings order into the chaos. He separates the waters from the waters, and Yabashah comes up, and God's people walk on them after they've been saved. By the way, this is for your own study, but right after Noah gets off that boat, if, if you, want, you want to truly know that it's just Genesis 1, 2, and 3 all over again, they find themselves in the garden. There's nakedness, shame, and sin all over again, right at there. It repeats itself. So you see there's a design pattern. The waters are judgment and chaos, and God brings order to them. He separates the water and has dry land appear. How does Exodus begin? An evil man named Pharaoh says to throw all the Hebrew, the Israelite male babies into the Nile to die. If you throw out all the male babies, what happens? No reproduction. No being fruitful and multiplying. The very command that started this can now no longer take place. Pharaoh is not just, the biblical authors don't want you just to see Pharaoh is doing some mean things. 
He's standing against the divine will of God for his people to be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you were here from week one, you remember this, but briefly, how is his plan thwarted? Because the babies are put into the water, but one baby is saved in a basket by Moses' mother. But the Hebrew word for basket doesn't mean basket. The Hebrew word is tevar. It's the word for ark. Baby Moses is placed in an ark while the chaotic waters of the Nile surround him. And the ark, the tevar, brings salvation for Moses and thus the people of God. Now, in each of the stories, the Ruach of God is there. Did you see how the waters were dried up in the Noah story? Did you catch that? It wasn't the sun came out and it was really hot and the, the water dried up. It says that a Ruach from God from the east came and dried up the waters. So here's your pattern. There's the chaotic waters which should be feared. They are chaos. God brings order to that. He speaks and there's light and there's day. There's sun, there's darkness and night. And God's people are spared by not being drowned in the chaotic waters, but Yabashah, dry land appears, and the dry land appears when the Ruach of God shows up and provides a way for his people to walk. Now this is, we'll go back to what we already read, but with all of those images in your mind. You've been hearing these stories around the campfire since you were little. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east ruach, and night, all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided again, or split, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on Yabashah, dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left." Now, if you've recognized this pattern, you know something is coming. God's people are being spared from the chaotic waters, but what do the chaotic waters engulf and envelop? The wicked people who rebel against God. This is what the flood story is. Now, all the elements are there except maybe one. In the other stories and in Genesis, when God brings order, he always then brings the morning sun. Do you remember what time of day this is all taking place in? It's nighttime. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord knew the, threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The design pattern is this. Evil men rise up against God's people. God's people are put in the sea. God divides the waters. He brings order. 
He brings Yabashah for his people to walk across. And then when you least expect it, the forces of judgment come in and engulf the enemy of God's people. Now, the reason why this is so good is, like, picture it as a movie now. Maybe one day they'll make this into a movie and do it right. It's been like 80 years since a good one was out. You're picturing God's people march on dry land with their backs turned to the slain gods of Egypt with their enemies pursuing them. It's dark. It's nighttime. Picture the soundtrack like there's a... They're walking. And as the sun begins to rise at their back to the dead and slain gods of Egypt, the waters engulf the Egyptian army and God's people are brought to safety. Come on. That's good. That is so good. The Bible is so, so good. Like, you got to read this stuff again and again and again and again, and then you'll see it. You go, the Bible is so, so good. It's so good. Then they celebrate. The worship team's going to come up, and we're going to pass out communion. But you know how I said the... They're not walking through the dry land with the waters on the side celebrating. Like, God's delivered us. They're terrified. But when they get to the other side... Then they celebrate, and Moses sings a song. This is called the Song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. The Lord Yahweh is a warrior. The Lord Yahweh is his name. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He will reign forever and ever. Now, what does this story teach us as we prepare ourselves for communion? The parting of the Red Sea, the Exodus story, becomes the quintessential image of salvation in the New Testament. Judgment is going to come upon the wicked ones, but God's people are spared, and he puts their feet on dry land. This is the image that then functions for salvation all throughout the rest of the Bible and the New Testament. Who prepares the way for Jesus in the Gospels? John the Baptist, what is he doing? He's taking people down to the river to do what? To immerse immerse them in water and have them come up out of the waters in new life. Oh, what happens at Jesus' baptism? Guys catch this before? So good. So, so good. So Jesus goes and gets baptized. The sky opens up. What comes down? Come on, there's a thousand different types of bird. Why does it have to be a dove? Of course it has to be a dove. And what is the dove doing? Hovering over the waters. And who is the dove? It's not a bird. It's the Ruach, the Spirit of God, now saying, this is my true word. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. When does the resurrection happen? 3 p.m., 5 p.m.? The women go to the tomb while it's still dark. And the sun rises as the sun rises. The Bible has these themes and elements and everywhere, and the more you read, the more you see them. Now, 
Last thought. There's another reason why the image of the parting of the Red Sea is the image for our salvation. What did Israel have to do to see the sea parted? What does God tell them to do? Just stand there and be silent. Trust me. I am going to work for you today. I am going to work for you today. Your enemy you will never see again. So that in this image of salvation, the enemies of Israel surround them and God tells them to stand firm, be still, be silent, and trust in me. Israel did nothing. They watched God fight on their behalf. And after he fought for them, all they had to do was start walking on dry land. How are you saved? What is the image of your salvation today? What did you do? What work did you do? What did you contribute? When God gave, gave you grace, why did he do it? This image is our image. When your enemy surrounded you, when Satan, sin, and death encircled you, and you had no hope, you did nothing. Your hands did not bring about the grace in your life. God said, shh, be still. Know that I am God. Watch what I will work for you today. And what happened to the Israelites thousands of years ago is your story. Your enemies were around you. God fought for you. And you just started walking on dry land. Grace after grace after grace. Mercy after mercy after mercy. Let's stand as we take communion.